So this morning we are continuing our study together through the book of Acts. Last week, in my absence, Pastor Thad uh, did an excellent job of taking you through chapter 4 and the apostles' example of boldness in the face of opposition to the gospel. But um, as you remember, two weeks ago, I decided to split chapter 3 into two parts, and so now we get to back up and finish chapter 3 together this morning. Our title, as a reminder, is A Model Disciple, part 2 now. Because in Acts 3, we find Peter and John, Jesus' disciples, following in his footsteps, doing the works that Jesus did. In the first half of chapter 3, the apostles did the works that Jesus did physically in miraculously healing this man who was lame from birth. In Jesus' name, they give him the power to walk. And we said that because Jesus, our rabbi, our Lord, devoted his life in part to bringing us physical healing and restoration, meeting physical needs, feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick and the imprisoned that we too as his disciples ought to do likewise. And so we extrapolated seven principles for doing so from verses 1 through 11 here. As a quick recap for you of two weeks ago, we said we need to be available Peter and John were right where God wanted them to be in order to be used by God to reach this poor man in need. And so too, you and I must regularly put ourselves in a position to be bothered by others' physical needs and then view those occasions not as inconveniences but as opportunities to minister and love. Number two, we have to be attentive. It's not enough to encounter needs. We have to notice them. Peter and John, they noticed this lame beggar when others ignored him and passed right by. We need to truly see people. And moreover, number three, we need to see them the way that Jesus sees them. We need to be affectionate. Peter and John were the only ones in the temple that day to make eye contact with this man, to give him back his dignity, his worth as an image bearer of God. They looked at him not with the judgment and condemnation that the scribes and Pharisees did, but with compassion and love like Jesus did. Number four, we ought to be altruistic, unselfishly concerned for and devoted to the welfare of others. The apostles said, look, we don't have silver or gold. What we do have, we give you. They generously share all that they did have, and it happened to be what the man truly needed, healing. Perhaps for you and I today, it's the opposite. We don't possess that same supernatural gift of healing, but what we do have is the silver and gold to be able to care for others' material, physical needs. We ought to do so altruistically. Number five, we should be ancillary, secondary, subordinate. We help people not to feel good about ourselves, not to pat ourselves on the back, but to point them to Jesus. It's all about him. Because after all, any help that we have to offer people must come from him anyway. And then number six, we should be audacious, extremely bold in our service to others. Not, again, because we have confidence in ourselves, our own abilities to help, to heal, to meet needs, but because we have so much confidence in the Lord who is able to do all things because our God is able to heal the lame, to raise the dead, to sober up the addict, to comfort the afflicted, the brokenhearted. And we know that in his providence, God chooses to use us as his vessels, his instruments of his healing and his hope to others. And lastly, in part one, we said that we need to be accepting. 
After Peter and John healed this man, verse 11 says he clung to them, and they in turn, they celebrate with him. They treated him not like a project, but like a person. We need to be like Jesus, the friend of sinners, and accept others in his name. Because Jesus came not only to bring us physical restoration, but remember to offer us spiritual healing as well. Our spiritual need is more subtle. It can be harder to see these spiritual needs that Jesus is calling us to meet in others' lives as we look around us in places like town and country, Chesterfield, Ladue. And yet, I am convinced that's only because we don't see as God sees through spiritual eyes that if we could see others around us the way that God sees spiritually, God, for Samuel 16, 7, who looks not on the outward appearance but on the heart, I'm convinced that when God looks at West County, St. Louis, he sees every bit as much poverty, spiritual poverty, as when he looks at East St. Louis. That my neighbors, my next door neighbors, need Jesus every bit as much as the homeless man living under the 14th Street overpass bridge downtown. And though spiritual poverty is more subtle than physical poverty, it's even more significant, eternally significant, And there's one story in particular from the Gospels that highlights this point best. It's the story of the paralytic from Luke chapter 5. If you remember, friends of this paralyzed man, they hoist him up on top of a house that Jesus is teaching in, and then they lower him down through the roof to get him to Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus does? What he says? The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus said to the man, Your sins are forgiven you. And it's not until moments later when the onlooking Pharisees start to question him in their hearts that Jesus says almost as an afterthought, well, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the man, go ahead and rise, pick up your mat and walk, go home. In other words, according to Jesus, it's much easier to heal this man physically, miraculously knit together some disjointed bones, make them work again. What's really hard is uniting sinful man back together with a holy, perfect God. That's really hard, impossible, in fact, for anyone but God to forgive sins, spiritual healing. The Pharisees were right. Only God has the ability, the authority to do such a thing. They just didn't realize they were looking at him. Jesus, God in the flesh. And so to prove it, Jesus heals the man's physical paralysis secondarily. And so here in part two, this morning, second half of Acts chapter three, we're going to examine our calling as Jesus' followers to minister even more importantly to people's spiritual needs. And so to the seven exhortations concerning physical healing that we just recapped, we're going to add another 11 encouragements this morning for offering spiritual restoration to others. Why are you laughing? You don't think I can? I'm going to get you out in time for lunch.
11 exhortations. Would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 3? We're going to actually pick up in verse 11 where we left off. We're going to actually go through chapter 4, verse 4, where Pastor Thad picked up last week. Peter and John, you remember, have just healed this man, lame from birth, and then we read the word of the Lord. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of these prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Would you use it now to illuminate our hearts, give us spiritual eyes to see uh, ourselves rightly, sinners in need of grace, to see others around us the way that you see them. Give us your, your eyes, your heart for the lost, the broken, the hurting. Would you use your word this morning to encourage us, but to challenge us, convict us, exhort us to be the kind of model disciples that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
may be seated. I count 11 marks here of a true disciple who would follow in Jesus' footsteps by offering spiritual healing to others. Number one, we must be advantageous. We've got to take advantage of every possible opportunity to share the gospel. We said two weeks ago that we ought to be praying, asking God for these opportunities to share. But the point here is that when God answers those prayers, when God provides us with those opportunities, we've got to seize them to take advantage, like Peter does here in verse 12. It says, when Peter saw it, when he saw the whole temple crowding around this not-so-lame-anymore man, utterly astounded and searching for an explanation. Peter doesn't waste the moment. Immediately, he addressed the people. He jumped at this opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And I'll be honest, I, I stink at this. Personally, I'm, I'm really good at recognizing opportunities to share the gospel with someone like 30 seconds after the chance has passed. If a volleyball buddy his car breaks down, I offer him a ride home, I realize as he's walking in his front door, hmm, I wonder if God gave me that opportunity because I was supposed to have a conversation about faith with him, or a pest control salesman shows up unannounced on the front door, maybe I even do the right thing, I invite him in for a glass of cold water on a hot day, kind enough to listen to his bad sales pitch, instead of treating him like an annoyance, but then it's not until he's walked back out my front door, to the next neighbor's house that I realized, shoot, I should have pitched him. Hey, I've got a, a good, a better sales pitch for you. That's something you need way more than pest control. Let me tell you about Jesus. My father-in-law, on the other hand, is really good at this. He's always looking for opportunities to witness. If the grocery store bagger is wearing a cross, he'll ask her, I love your necklace. I'm, I'm curious. Is that just for fashion or is it for faith? Or our waiter at dinner, if he has a tattoo, he'll ask, it's a cool tattoo, is there a story behind it? There's a way to potentially open a deeper, more personal conversation, perhaps share his own story of faith in Jesus. What is that? Is that my father-in-law just less concerned with offending people, making conversations awkward? Or is he more extroverted? Does he have the spiritual gift of evangelism that most of us lack? Or is he just obedient to pray for opportunities and then not wait but proactively seek them out and boldly take advantage when God provides them? Point number two, we need to be unassuming. We need to be modest, not self-important. This is Sort of a restatement of point number five from last week, or from two weeks ago, part one, about being ancillary, secondary. But the point is so important here, so often transgressed that it bears repeating that our helping of others shouldn't be about us feeling good about ourselves, looking good in others' eyes. It should be about pointing people to Jesus. The first words out of Peter's mouth here in verse 12, when the whole temple crowd rushes on him like a celebrity, Getting out of a limo on the red carpet, Peter says, Why are you looking at us, me and John, as though by our own power, piety, we've made this man well? Don't look at us. Peter immediately deflects their attention away from himself to Jesus where it belongs. Peter knows, I can't do squat without Jesus. 
It's got to be God's power flowing through me to heal anyone. I offered you that illustration two weeks ago. I'll remind you of me allowing my two-year-old son to help me clean up the milk that he had spilled all over the counter. He spills it in the first place. Our sin broke the world in the first place, and yet God in his mercy fills us with his spirit to allow us to be co-agents for change and bringing shalom back into the world, not because he needs us, because we need him, but because he's a loving father. And so whenever we're tempted to get our heads inflated about how much good we're doing in the world, what a blessing we are to the world, we need to remember ourselves as those toddlers simply helping clean up our spilled milk. Here's another one. This is why you let me do things like go on vacation for sermon illustrations. I've got a picture for you from our vacation of Elijah driving the golf cart, driving the golf cart down in Florida, big smile on his face. Look at me, Dad. Watch me drive, totally ignorant of Doja's hands over top of his, controlling the steering wheel, Doja's foot, the one pressing down the gas pedal. My son thinks he's driving. He's delusionally (laughs) self-important. Friends, that's you and me. When we try and take credit for anything good that God might choose to do through us, he's the one driving the car. And so we ought to be unassuming and simply point people to Jesus. Number three, we should be accommodating. To accommodate is to adjust or adapt in order to best suit one's circumstances. Now, the content of the gospel cannot be accommodated or adjusted. The content, the central message of the gospel, that God is supreme, that we are sinful, that Jesus is Savior, and that faith alone in him is sufficient for salvation, that message doesn't change, but the medium, how we convey the message to others has to be contextualized to fit our audience. The content doesn't change, but the context does. And we're going to see that played out in the nine different gospel presentations that we'll examine throughout the book of Acts. When the Apostle Paul, for instance, witnesses to the Greek philosophers in Athens in chapter 17, it's very different from Peter's sermonette here in chapter 3. Paul doesn't quote scripture, the Old Testament, at all to the Epicureans and the Stoics because it wasn't scripture to them. It wasn't inspired writing for them. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to quote their own pagan philosophers to share the gospel with the Athenians. Can you imagine quoting a passage of the Quran to share the gospel with your Muslim neighbor? Quoting Nietzsche to share the gospel to your humanist co-worker. Because Peter here, because he's evangelizing an entirely Jewish audience, he references scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers who spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets. And he quotes Deuteronomy 18 and Genesis 22 and 26. Because we want to accommodate our evangelism, the gospel message, to our audience so we can share the good news with folks in terms, a way that they can understand. 
which is why I had to get out of youth ministry, because I didn't know what a TikTok was or who Billy Eilish was or what sussy meant, and frankly, I didn't care. In TBH, I, I just was annoyed with Gen Z subculture, didn't want to learn. The truth is, the church can't afford to get annoyed and just give up on the culture. We can't afford to. Maybe harder and harder for us as a church to accommodate, to translate the gospel into terms that our culture understands. When apparently from judging from TV shows and music that our culture produces, every other word used in normal everyday conversations outside the church these days is a four-letter one. It's going to be harder and harder for us to converse. Which mainstream movies, shows, artists, can we, should we even stomach anymore as Christians for the sake of staying connected and fluent in our culture? Where exactly is this line drawn that we're called to walk between being in the world but not of the world? We have to be distinct enough from the world that we're still light and salt. If salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. And yet, salt has to be pressed into decaying meat to be useful, to be effective. Light has to shine into the darkness to be helpful. So how far into the culture should we go as believers? Where is that line? These are all fair questions that deserve discussion in the church. Gracious, charitable discussion amongst Christians who may have different approaches, but who share the same goal, reaching our culture with the good news of Jesus. Number four, sometimes meeting people's spiritual needs will mean being accosting. To accost is to confront boldly. Just listen to how Peter confronts boldly his listeners in verses 13 through 15. And I think it's kind of fun here. Uh, I kind of imagine Peter as a seminarian taking a class in homiletics from Professor Joel Osteen. And the assignment is to write a sermon uh, that you'd preach if you had the chance to address, address the crowd who had crucified your best friend and their Messiah, Jesus. And so when it's Peter's turn, he stands up in front of the class and boldly exclaims his sermon, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Pilate was ready to wash his hands and to let Jesus go, but you wouldn't let him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. And you killed the author of life. And I imagine Professor Joel interrupting him, saying, Peter, I'm just going to stop you right there. I, I love your passion, your enthusiasm, but I have found in my years of ministry that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar that pe people don't need to be told how bad and sinful they are. They get beat up enough by the world Monday through Saturday. And on Sundays, we just need to remind them how good they are, how much God loves them. They're the apple of his eye. They're the most important thing in the world to him. 
And don't forget, Peter, to smile. (laughs) But friends, the good news of the gospel isn't really good without the bad news about our sin, is it? It doesn't even make sense. If we're just good people deserving of God's love, how do you explain him sending his only son to die on a cross? What's the point? If we aren't wicked sinners in desperate need of forgiveness. People need to know that they're sinners. Peter's going to say in verse 19, repent, turn around, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that you may be saved. There's no salvation without repentance, without recognizing that you need saving, that you're on the wrong path, and then making a conscious decision to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus instead. But that means that people have to be warned about their sin. They've got to be warned about the path they're on and where it leads. We took the kids last week to this neat little wildlife sanctuary down in Florida where you follow this path through the woods and then you come out in this little clearing and there's a big enclosure with two giant black bears. And then you follow the path a little farther and you come out another clearing with panthers. A little farther, there's the reptiles, the alligators and water moccasins. Now I want you to imagine with me that there were no cages, but that by God's grace, as we were walking down the path, we had noticed ahead of us these deadly animals far enough in the clearing to slowly, to stop and slowly backpedal until we could turn and run for it with all our lives. But while we're running, imagine there's another family that we pass running the opposite direction just as fast toward the bears and panthers and alligators. How much would I have to hate them not to warn them about what's ahead of them on the path? To let them keep running toward imminent death without so much as a warning. I can't make them turn around, but I can at least warn them. I can even accost them, boldly confront them if necessary, do everything in my power to try and stop them. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them not to go. If hell must be filled, Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Need to be accosting. Number five, we should be attributive. Namely, we attribute all credit and praise for any healing, physical or spiritual, that anyone, ourselves or others, may experience to its rightful source to Jesus. He is the source of all healing ancillary, we're unassuming, we're attributive. This point is so important that Peter repeats it now a third time in verses 15 and 16. He says, you killed the author of life. That's the bad news. But God raised him from the dead. That's the good news. 
Even your sin couldn't keep him down. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to defeat sin and hell and death forever for all who would simply trust in him by faith. That's the gospel. To this we are witnesses. And Peter says, his name, Jesus, by faith in his name, there it is, this has made this man strong. He attributes all the credit where it belongs to Jesus. Let me give you three quick reasons why it's such a good thing that Jesus gets all the credit and all the praise for saving sinners. Because number one, you can't save anyone. You and I can't save anyone. Remember, Jesus said it's harder to heal people spiritually, to miraculously snap their bones back in place than it is to heal spiritually, and we can't even do that. We can't do physical miracles. And so you and I don't have a shot of saving anyone spiritually. Pharisees are right. Only God can do that. We can preach the gospel till we're blue in the face, and we should. But we have absolutely no power to change someone's heart. And so if any of you have been carrying that burden for too long, this morning I invite you to lay it down where it belongs at the foot of the cross. I know men, godly, faithful men, who aren't sure if they're qualified to be elders of the church because Titus 1.6 says an elder's children must be faithful, and they interpret that to mean saving faith in Christ instead of simply raising loyal, devoted kids who they can pray with, pray for with all their hearts, desperately for God to save, but in whose hearts they have absolutely no ability to control for outcome. You can't save your kids. I can't save my kids. That's actually a good thing, because if we could, we'd screw it up. <laughs> but number two, the good news is Jesus can save anyone. We can't save anyone. Jesus can save anyone. He alone gets the praise because he alone has the power to save. He really can't save anyone. Anyone. Like the people in your life you don't even bother praying for anymore because it's so unthinkable, unimaginable, impossible that they would come to repentance, surrender to Jesus. People like me. Ten years ago, people like you. Jesus can and does save. Praise God. Thirdly, it's good news that Jesus does the saving because we can trust him. Jesus promised that God gives good gifts to his children who ask of him, and there is no better gift to pray for for someone else than salvation. We know that's God's desire. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our job is to pray for them. We keep praying, pleading, preaching, loving on them and trusting in him that God's word will not return void. And when God saves, he gets all the praise. Number six, we need to be amicable. To be amicable is to be characterized by or showing goodwill, friendly, peaceable. Now, Peter doesn't pull any punches here. He says, you killed, Jesus. You killed the author of life, but then the very next thing he does in verse 17 is to bend over backward to, tr to try and assume the best about their motives and to try and build a bridge rather than burn one in order to win his listeners to Christ. He says, verse 17, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. 
Peter refers to them affectionately as brothers. And then he says, brothers, I know that you didn't, you mustn't have known what you were doing when you killed Jesus. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you didn't know. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself affirmed as much, didn't he, when he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. And so Peter doesn't take an opportunity here to lay on the guilt and the condemnation. Yes, they need to know that they've sinned against God, but they also need to know that Peter isn't looking down his nose at them, that Peter recognizes that he's a sinner too. That's probably why Jesus ordained that Peter, of all his disciples, and in Jesus' hour of greatest need, would deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times on the night of his crucifixion so that Peter would never be tempted to look down on anyone else for denying Christ. No, Peter can empathize with them. Look, I needed Jesus' grace and forgiveness just as much as you do now. And so after he accosts them with the bad news about their sin, Peter is amicable in sharing the good news about their Savior. He doesn't threaten them with hellfire and brimstone from a megaphone and a soapbox. He invites them lovingly to turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What a beautiful word. Our vacation was refreshing. Peter says, you want to be spiritually refreshed? Come to Jesus. And bad impersonations aside, you really do catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, don't you? Peter puts it this way years later in his first New Testament letter. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. The word that we use sometimes in the church today is winsome. We want to be winsome, kindly pleasing, attractive, appealing, engaging, winning, amicable. Is that us? Does that describe you and me in the church? And yet... We've got to be amicable, but number seven, we've also got to be adamant, unyielding in our stand for the truth. Peter knows, as Paul will write later in 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews, and yet he doesn't shy away from preaching Christ crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of sin. Verses 18 through 19 there. He's adamant. It's the gospel. They've got to hear it. They've got to hear the truth. But boy, that is a tough balance to strike, isn't it? To be both amicable and adamant. To be equally winsome about the good news of the gospel and yet unyielding about people's sin and their need for it, their need for salvation. While we're at it, we can add number eight, our need to be adjuring To adjure is to charge or command earnestly, to entreat or request solemnly. Peter adjures them. He pleads with them. 
begs them in verse 19, repent, brothers, turn back. Don't continue down the path. There's no cages on the animals. If sinners be damned, let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. Peter's wrapping his arms around them. They're going to hell. They're doing it with my arms around their knees. Number nine, we must be assuring. Specifically, we need to assure people of three unavoidable and imperative biblical truths. Three truths that Peter assures his listeners here of. Number one, that God has fulfilled his Old Testament promises to us in Jesus. Verse 21 says, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. Verse 22, Jesus is the fulfillment specifically of Moses' promise that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And verse 24, that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel all the way down, all of them also proclaim these days, the days of Jesus we're now living in. He's the Messiah. It's all been pointing to him. Secondly, Peter assures them that because of that, if they reject Jesus, they are in eternal trouble. That's verse 23. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, the Messiah, to Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. But thirdly, and conversely, Peter assures them that if they will not reject, but if they will receive Jesus, they will be delivered and eternally blessed. Verse 26, God having raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him to you first, the Jews first. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for all who believe. It's the saving message of God for all who would believe, to the Jew first, secondly to the Gentile. He did it to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So do it. Turn from your wickedness. Repent. Head to Jesus. That's a pretty good, concise list of the core, essential gospel truths that we need to be assuring folks of. If we're going to be ambassadors for Jesus of spiritual healing, these three truths that God has spoken to us in his word, the Bible, and that Jesus, his son, was the word made flesh and the fulfillment and the focus of all of Scripture. That number two, therefore, to reject Jesus means spiritual suicide. John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus said, John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a path, not a truth, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the only door to get into heaven. Therefore, number three, to receive him, to receive Jesus, means blessing and assurance and salvation and life. John 3.16, which we sang this morning already. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the good news of the gospel. And what a privilege we have to be God's appointed mouthpieces, his messengers 
of that truth. Just like Peter refers to the prophets here of old, the Old Testament, or the mouthpieces of God to deliver his promises of salvation to come, we now, today, not just me up here at the pulpit, we all, we're all ministers of this new covenant. We get to be the mouthpieces of God to announce the truth and the goodness, the glory and the beauty of his salvation for all who would simply believe and trust in Jesus. And yet, as we do so along the way, number 10, we need to be advised. You should be advised this morning, be forewarned, that if you faithfully mouthpiece, message for God, if you're an ambassador for Christ, you will face opposition. That if you and I look and talk and smell and act and love anything like Jesus, anything close to that, if we are faithful followers at all, Jesus has already promised us what it will bring us. He said, if they hated me, John 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And that's exactly what happens to Peter and John here at the open of chapter 4. The Jewish leaders hear the crowd getting stirred up. They come, they listen, they hear that name, Jesus. They know what they did to him. And so they shut it down and they lock up Peter and John. So too, you and I this morning. We not get locked up in our country yet. But we need to be advised. If you want to be the most popular employee in the office, if you want to be the most liked neighbor in the cul-de-sac, if you want to be the most appreciated voice in your school's PTA board, don't follow Jesus. He did not make folks popular 2,000 years ago, and he will not make you popular today. And yet, number 11, if we faithfully follow him, come what may, we say, like Scripture tells us, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I know there's only two teams here, team Jesus and team not Jesus. I know which team I'm on. I'm going to follow him, all my chips on him, all my eggs in that basket, come what may, we can be anticipatory, anticipatory, expectant that God will bless the ministry of his word, he will bless you for it, for ministering, for being faithful, and that he will use you to reach others in his name, just like he used Peter and John. But many of those who had heard the word that Peter spoke, believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Are we praying that God would send us out, use us as his humble but faithful ambassadors, messengers of the all-important saving news of the gospel that those around us need to hear. I believe that God wants to do a great work in St. Louis, in our city, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, in our, our families, our schools, our circles of influence, radius, of ministry, that God wants to work in and through the ministry of this church 300 or so of us here at West Hills to reach people with that all-important good news of salvation. 
Do we believe it? Are we praying? Are we begging him for it? God, would you use us as your humble instruments, mouthpieces, and then are we expecting him to do it? Are we praying and expecting that he would do what only he can do and change hearts and reap the harvest that is plentiful?